0: If you're an early-stage Web3 founder, apply to our award-winning accelerator program Basecamp at outliveventures.io slash Basecamp. We write your first $50,000 check and give you access to 200 mentors, including many of the leading Web3 founders, and a network of 1,000 of the world's leading investors and exchanges. We've helped over 30 startups from 15 countries from all around the world, raise $130 million in growth funding. Can help you fast track product market fit and where relevant, the launch of your token economy. So, today I'm really happy to welcome on the show Henry Piccola, founder of Streamer. Welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Jamie. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Streamer's described at least in one place that I could find as unstoppable data for unstoppable apps. Um, you founded Streamer to make data more available, fair, and valuable for all. I guess the valuable bit is uh, very important. Um, and you said about building scalable infrastructure and tools for real-time data, and, and this has kind of been a mission of yours for over um, ten years. You're also passionate about decentralization of applications and data infrastructure. We'll get into a little bit later. You've previously been CTO to two algorithmic trading companies, um, one of which you co-founded. Interestingly on LinkedIn, you describe yourself as a coder by heart, CEO by day. Um, I'm sure this kind of uh, this personality split is something a lot of technical founders can identify with. So it's going to be interesting to see how you how you wrestle with that or you've mastered it. I don't know um, which one you profess to doing. Um, so the reasons why I've got you on the show, most people will know by now the open data economy is, is very important to me and Outlier Ventures and, of course, to you guys at Streamer. But you've also been exploring something again very close to our heart which is the convergence of things like iot and blockchain for some time but it's still not really happened at scale and and so it's interesting to understand you know why and and why that might might now be different Um, i kind of know of you most recently um, as a consequence of one of the startups that we accelerated called uh, Swash App, which is a browser data plugin, which is a user of Streamer, and a good example of some of the use cases that have the potential to cross over into mainstream consciousness. And again, I think this is a really important thing as we move away from the kind of theoretics of the open data economy, you know, exactly how will it emerge you know, how will it bring new people, new data sets into it, but more importantly, um, the the users of data, the consu- consumer of data, both in a kind of in a commercial context. But also, I think it's very timely to, to begin talking about open data again. Uh, recent news uh, as of, I believe, first week of this month, October 2020, is that the European Commission will begin to force big tech like Google or Amazon to make proprietary user data sets available um, with, I guess, this long tail of business um, that's kind of looking to to, to deliver digital services um, uh, from a kind of anti-competitive perspective. Um, but of course, there's also lots of stuff going on around data, data privacy and, and stuff like that. So I'm looking forward to getting into a lot of those subjects with you. Cool, sounds excellent. So um, what I normally do is try to give the origin story of a founder to contextualize them. If there's anything in there that's incorrect or... Um, light on detail, please feel free to interrupt and build upon it. So you are Finn, you're from uh, Helsinki, you studied at Helsinki University of Technology, um, obviously in computer science, as, as you would expect. Um, you. So this was, did you graduate in uh, 2010, is that right? Yeah, yeah. That was eight years by the looks of it. It was eight
1: years, but I, would be, I was basically working like after the first two years or maybe through the whole thing actually. So, so yeah, it was a mix. Like you were, you were mentioning the sort of split personality between like being CEO and technical guy, but that was also a split personality time when I was trying to study as well as work at the same time. So yeah,
0: always, always sort of doing this multitasking. I think that's, (laughs) that's me. And I can see, you know, your serial founder, but there's also, Presumably, those periods uh, alongside your studies where you were doing a lot of freelancing um, in a a range of different things from e-commerce, systems integration, logistics, uh, kind of generalizable IT infrastructure. I guess um, the first uh, kind of start of your notable start of the career was as a lead software engineer. Back in 2008, at an algorithmic trading, uh, well, described as an algorithmic trading and low latency trading platform, um, uh, specifically statistical arbitrage strategies on US and Canadian markets. And you did that from 2008 to 2011. Um, you then left and co founded your own uh, algorithmic trading um, platform, um, which was. Unifina and you were kind of co founder CTO, and that was in 2011.
1: Yeah, and that was actually when I met Nick and my, my co founder at Streamer as well. So we've been working together since, since then.
0: Interesting. And I think, you know, obviously DeFi is hot now. And as we're looking for what data sets might be interesting, usable, you know, valuable in the context of Web three, I think you know that background in financial services, capital markets is going to be interesting to kind of circle back to that. Oh, um, for
1: sure, and that's also when I sort of fall in love with, uh, fell in love with real time data. I mean, because the work in algorithmic trading that was a completely. Based on getting as accurate real-time data as possible and making automatic decisions based on that data so that's I think when I came to realize the value of data for the first time and especially real-time data in various kind of automation use cases so maybe maybe that experience actually led later to to what we know as streamer today
0: and so maybe for, for people that aren't familiar with the data economy as it is today, or at least as it was then in 2011, how would you procure data to to kind of train those models and, and as you say, kind of real-time data to presumably make them perform better?
1: Yeah, it was was (laughs) extremely difficult and expensive. So obviously, like in in the sort of old-fashioned centralized data markets, there's a lot of middlemen. And if you think about the finance sector, the data originates from the exchanges, but the exchanges don't really uh, sell it directly to people. So there are these data aggregators or, or data brokers uh, in, in between, or even several steps of these, which makes it very uh, expensive usually to do um, to like build a business based on those data streams. And every step of course also adds a bit of risk into the picture as well uh, as well as latency, which is usually important, especially when you're doing that kind of high frequency trading kind of thing. So you basically want to physically physically get as close as possible to the source of the data so that you can gain an advantage on those markets. It's a pretty wild and very specialized world that I think in the centralized finance and in trading it's pretty much still the same but in the crypto it's it's completely different different like all the you know all the data streams from the exchanges are publicly available and free as opposed to the stock market data which is like closed and expensive so it's amazing how openness uh, has sort of followed from um, from the sort of ideological starting points of of crypto in the first place and the open source and everything to basically also having a lot of open data available in the crypto space.
0: Yeah, and that's really interesting, you know, the idea of the open data economy being about open source technology and infrastructure, but then as you say, the principles around open data. Um, And of course, I, I think, you know, most people would be aware of, Algorithmic trading in the context of Flash Boys, and if people haven't read that book, you, you, you really, really should. I guess they're the wild days of trying to get you know the slightest edge on the ability to execute a trade uh, before somebody else. So then you went on to found it looked like your your, your second company, which was the original Streamer, same name as, as the company now, and by the way, for clarity, it's Streamer S T R E A M R. I guess, Streamer 1.0, and uh, then it got renamed to Data in Chains, and we can talk about that a little bit later. But um, the initial streamer was around, still around real-time data, um, and in particular IoT, but it was existing, it was leveraging blockchain technology. So you founded this uh, in 2016 and uh, was some of the first people to kind of be Leveraging existing blockchain technology for the for the purpose of IoT, but this was uh, initially in a in a very centralized way, right? So could you explain um, what led you to founding the original streamer, and you know, I guess from a technical perspective, what what the stack looked like and 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 what kind of data you were dealing with?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. So in there, I guess one thing led to another. So when we were doing that algorithmic trading exercise that we talked about, we We were building like this tooling for ourselves uh, of sorts so that we could uh, ingest large amounts of real-time data as well as build those trading algorithms on top of that. But having realized that these real-time data streams have value for automation and other things, we started to think that, hey, okay, could we actually like make a generic platform that is not aimed at finance Specifically, but rather would allow people to ingest all kinds of real-time data streams, uh, and apply analytics, uh, share data streams, do this kind of things. So this was back in I think I think 2014 to 2016 era, and uh, we so, so we sort of started started generalizing the technology that we built originally for algorithmic trading, but aiming it more at non-finance use cases, you know, IOT, all kind of machine data, industrial data, these kind of things. But it was made as a centralized um, cloud service as you would you know, have nowadays, um, even as a hosted service on AWS or, or you know, Amazon cloud or something like this. People were talking about big data, but nobody was really talking about real-time data. But that was the only logical direction in which things would go once the sort of power of data would become you know, generally acknowledged, which did happen. So, so we were sort of trying to play, play that game um, and it was quite OK. Uh, we got the thing up and running. Uh, we worked with some, some really good clients, big clients back then. But there was always, in the back of our heads like this idea of, of like a, you know, you know, a one platform, building this global data platform, um, and also an idea of a marketplace, um, And there was just no way that would happen if we stay this centralized little startup somewhere in Finland. I mean it probably like this centralized approach wouldn't probably even take off if it was made by google or, or or one of the giants let alone some small startup somewhere so around the same time uh we then sort of got super interested about uh ethereum and smart contracts and we had already been like previously back in the trading days looking at bitcoin but we didn't we sort of missed out on that we didn't go there because we were somehow more comfortable in the traditional you know stock markets and so on but looking back now we should have of course gone there but we didn't want to make the same mistake twice so so, um, around the same time then the first ICOs were starting to happen and pieces started to sort of fit together that okay our vision could actually be achieved by creating this decentralized data platform for, um, for real time data. And also, uh, we could uh, leverage this form of crowdfunding that was being, being born, which was the ICO, and everything just started sort of clicking there. And
0: that's, that's how the modern streamer got
1: started back in the day.
0: So, before we go into that, and we're going to kind of break down the evolution of streamer and What it is today in terms of its constituent parts. But just to circle back to this idea of real time data, because as you say, you know, big data has been a buzzword for some time. I mean, there are still people still out on the road, you know, selling cloud services and big data. Would you describe the reason why real-time data is so important is because data has a shelf life or an eat by date. So you could amass huge data lakes, but it kind of somehow rots, right? It, it loses its value, depreciates over time. And therefore, what you want is proximity to, uh, to data at source to feed into machine learning. Is, is, is that how you would describe it? Well, sort of. I mean, it depends a lot on the use case. Usually
1: you would teach a machine learning model with historical data, but then when you actually want to make decisions on the fly, you would uh, evaluate your model against the newest data, right? So you're, you're right to say, you're right in saying that the newest data uh, has value and it sort of deteriorates over time but also the history does have value because you can gain insights and train models with that but then when you're actually like you know um, making let's say trading decisions in finance or trying to build like a I don't know warning system for for smart traffic you know getting alerts about accidents or you're trying to react to an earthquake or there's a fire somewhere or whatever then then you really need to know what's the current situation and any delay in getting that information could have catastrophic consequences even. So, so, yeah, that's how I would categorize it. In many cases, you want the history for training and then when you actually run things, you, you do it in the, in the sort of now moment.
0: Yeah, and I think it's going to be interesting uh, a little bit later to go into... You know, data as an asset because not all data is equal. As you say, different use cases require different mixes of data. So I think you know, understanding data science in the context of um, uh, machine learning is going to be is going to be important to to listeners as well. But I guess also the reason why you know where where you've previously had a startup where you are the consumer or procurer of data, you know most. AI startups, the number one cost, I don't know if it's before or after people <laughs> engineers is is data right I mean the cost to acquire enough data to be able to build a, a model of any relevance is um, or any kind of edge is almost prohibitive right So for a long tail of startups or even you know large corporations it's almost impossible to play with with somebody like a Google.
1: Yes, and also there's a lot of data sets that don't exist yet, but they should exist. And they can only be sort of uh, brought into existence by creating new kind of models like crowdsourcing, for example. Many of the traditional data sets are siloed. They, they are owned by the giants. There's no way to access those, even though obviously they would add a lot of value to many companies. But that's the competitive edge that the 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 giants are, are trying to keep of course it's it's a very natural thing to decide it's a cliche that data is the new oil but we think that the sort of delivery processes of of that oil should be made much 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 more efficient and also fair so that those thresholds that exist in leveraging that data in all businesses could be brought down as low as possible
0: yeah. And I think that's the way I've certainly always looked at blockchain in the context of the data economy or an open data economy is, is the kind of distribution channel, but also potentially where the kind of curation of data can happen or the commodification of data can happen. So uh, as we discussed in 2017, of course, high, um, the, the kind of peak of Uh, Everything that's going on in ICOs, you set up a Swiss company um, out of Zug where you issued the data token and evolved um, Streamer, the company. So, what what was the transition evolution like? It all happened like super fast. So, I would say that we sort of saw the light in
1: late two thousand sixteen. That okay, this is now the direction where we want to go. This. It just felt right. We, you know, we drank the Kool Aid of decentralization and Ethereum and all of that, and uh, you know, we entered the Matrix <laughs> in, in late 2016. And we we met some really really smart people back in the day that had you know worked on Ethereum back in the early days and who know who knew everybody in the in the then small uh, circles of Ethereum. And we uh, we just you know started living and breathing that that air back in the day Uh, so we started working on the white paper for for streamer for the crowdfunding that came out in in May and it you know the first sort of test for what we were doing had happened already earlier in February 2017 at edcon uh, conference and there we got a quite good reception even though we you know we didn't really have Anything back, back then, we had just an idea and, and some prototypes, uh, but people were, were liking it, and that gave us the courage to sort of push on and start like uh, seriously considering sort of this, this gigantic pivot of, of what we had been doing and doing so far. So in the summer of 2017, we set up the legal entity. In Tug, like you said, Um, and then we, yeah, Tug and Switzerland came into the picture because, you know, this stuff had been done there before. There was the Ethereum Foundation. There were some other crypto projects by that time that had based themselves there. So uh, it had less risk than doing it, for example, in Finland, where we would have been the first ones to do an ICO. And yeah, you might not want to be the first one uh, in line, just in case <laughs> you know <laughs> shots are fired. You don't want to be standing in the f- front line. Yeah, it was just a you know reducing the risk kind of thing. And in Switzerland at the time, you could find like law, you know, legal counsel and accountants and all this kind of supportive roles that understood something about crypto. You didn't need to explain it from scratch to every single person that you met. So it was just easier to to get there. And quite early we got on board some like um, like private commitments uh, for, for the token launch. Um, so we raised 30 million and about around half of that came from uh, like Private bigger uh, bigger contributors or, or whales, as people tend to call them, and then there was the public rounds in in September, October. It was crazy times, and and to be honest i I'm not sure I, I remember even half of it. We were so busy, we were like doing stuff like crazy it was the It was the good kind of startup life, I think, where everything was new and exciting. And somehow it brought me back to some even childhood memories when I was learning about computers. And, you know, I, I've basically written software since I was six years old and everything was new back then as a kid. And suddenly I felt this same feeling again as an adult, you know, this, everything was new again um, and this exciting new technology that,
0: that we could help create and it was an amazing time. What's interesting is that IoT has always been referenced in the context of streamer, and of course there have been a few other projects that have been looking to combine blockchain and IoT, like IOTA, for example, which was something we invested in way back. Right. Um, is IoT? Why was IoT so relevant to the real time data position? And is is I, IoT still? like a fundamental aspect of what streamer does in the context of all these other data marketplaces that are forming.
1: Yeah, in some sense, yes. I mean Streamer was always aimed at the kind of machine data flows. Uh, like not not video or anything or not, you know, human messaging, you know, on, on WhatsApp or, or whatnot. So it was always for those machine data flows. A bit like the ones we saw in the finance. Uh, space where we sort of came from and obviously like where would you where would you find that kind of machine data uh, flows well in iot of course which was a big hype at the time i think it never really realized maybe it will someday but it, it was sort of this nice picture of this ubiquitous world where there's connected devices everywhere and and everything is you know everything is a sensor and everything is connected and everything's emitting data all the time i think realizing that will take way more time than everybody thought it would take but i think we're still on that trajectory. And also people were talking a lot about smart CDs and how open data will will, you know, be. And there's gonna be this smart traffic and and you know smart houses and smart everything and smart parks and smart dogs and whatever. <laughs> <laughs> everything will be out there uh, and we'll need this like data infrastructure to to work. I think those predictions are true, but they were quite optimistic in terms of the timelines in when this when this would actually happen, yeah. You know, so if you compare it to the development of, of how the sort of internet came up, uh, about over like a couple of decades, then I think you know having thought that the world will completely change in five years was probably like quite optimistic on <laughs> on everyone's part. But for sure, the amount of data being produced all the time, and especially the amount of this type of data that carries like. Uh, temporal uh, relevance or, or is relevant to the sort of now moment is increasing all the time. And, of course, we're starting to be surrounded by sensors and we're increasingly interacting with digital applications and sort of producing uh, data ourselves all the time. So all of it is becoming more and more relevant, but slower than anticipated, I guess.
0: Yeah, and i would be interesting to get your take on... So I was also involved, I, mean, I remember speaking on innumerable panels when we kind of first put out our convergence thesis, which was how IoT combines with blockchain, which combines with AI. And a lot of those panels were, as you say, in the context of smart cities. Um, and uh, and of course, that isn't really where, certainly I've seen any of the adoption, that kind of conversations seem to have died down a bit. And it'd be interesting to know if, if you feel that, that just requires too much engagement with the world as it is today and regulators and actually where we're more likely to see um, rapid adoption of data marketplaces might be in something like DeFi, which is fairly, it's limited in scale at the moment and scope, but is fairly confined to itself. And therefore, um, there isn't really any of this kind of legacy uh, system for it to have to interact with. But maybe, maybe we come back to that because I think what would be important is to now just kind of break down Streamer into its constituent parts. As I understand it, there's a marketplace, um, you have the data token, you have the network and something you call core. Um, and so how, how do all those things, uh, did I catch them all and how do they all interact? And there's also the data unions framework, which is maybe the highest level thing
1: there. But yeah, I can walk you through, through those. Uh, so the, if we, Maybe we take like a bottom-up approach with that. So the lowest layer that we work on is the streamer network. And that's where the data goes. That's the data transport. So it's basically like a system that uh, delivers data from data publishers to data subscribers in real time. In technical terms, it's a, a publish-subscribe uh, system or pub sub system, but a decentralized one, as opposed to a centralized one uh, so that 's where the data goes you know you don 't want to put your data on a blockchain or anything because that would be just very slow and expensive and, and pointless so there's a there's the streamer network, which is a peer to peer network uh, that acts as the data transport and on the other hand, we of course build on um, on ethereum uh, as well. Uh, using that for, for not only value transfers in terms of the token, but also uh, keeping track of things like permissions to data and having like those strong guarantees that only a blockchain can deliver. So we're sort of combining best of both worlds of having like a non-blockchain peer-to-peer network, com- like working alongside this companion chain, which is Ethereum at the moment. And on top of this, now that we have like this value transfer mechanism and the data transfer mechanism, uh, we can build quite interesting things based on these two pillars. So for example, like you mentioned, there's a marketplace. So the marketplace is somewhere where you can, it's like a shopping window of sorts, where you can offer a view into what content, what data streams exist on the streamer network. And make them available to anybody against payment, so that brings in the, the sort of value transfer layer on ethereum uh, this was one of the actually the original motivations for moving from the centralized world to the decentralized that we wanted to enable this data economy and marketplaces to to be uh, to be created and there's no way in which this could have being done in the in the centralized space it would just would just have been like impossible. So the marketplace is is a meeting point for data buyers and, and data sellers, and then we have the core application, which is just just a sort of like a user interface for for interacting with the things on Streamer. So you can go there, uh, you can you know set up your streams, your data sources. You can set up your products uh, based on your streams you can even do some simple analytics even though it's not really like an analytics engine but it gives you the sort of swiss army knife for <clears throat> for real time data so that you can you know have everything available for uh, for your use cases in there and now more recently we've been working on this like yeah going going uh one abstraction layer higher like you know building uh, m- more, more and more amazing things is this data unions network, which is basically an implementation of data crowd selling. And I mentioned earlier in this podcast that, that there are data sets that don't exist yet, but should exist and do have value. So data unions is one way of trying to bring those data sets into existence. So it allows uh, uh, for a mechanism Where individual data providers are compensated for the data that they provide into this sort of joint pool, creating like a honeypot in the sense that, you know, the data, for example, the data of one individual might not be that interesting, but the data of 100,000 individuals uh, suddenly becomes um, a valuable product for a business looking to do, you know, competitor analysis or a market analysis or whatever the use case happens to be. So this is just a mechanism of, of basically revenue sharing based on those data streams that individuals can provide. And this is something that we uh, officially launched very recently. It was in, in public beta since May and actually was it
0: yesterday when it was officially uh, officially released. Oh, congratulations. And so, how does that discovery process work then? And, like, who are the users? Do you, and who comes first? Is it in the context of a data union? um, Is it that you're aggregating the value from a group of users? Is it predefined, like the value that that might have? Or is it just that by segmenting them, by having a demographic profile somehow, some context? a somebody procuring data can say you know i want a million people who match these kind of uh, categorizations um and i you know i want the data between this period and this period how would that work how does the matchmaking happen
1: yeah so we're just a tool you know we just make it possible we we make technology that can transport the data and take care of the the sharing of the money and the revenue but you know the the key thing is that there's a business opportunity for someone to enter this ecosystem and and sort of thrive in that ecosystem but it does require some insights and assumptions about for example what data is valuable and how should the data be packaged so that it is like a sellable product so it's not like you know click a button and you have a thriving business but actually you need to you know think about it you need to acquire your your users that provide the data and you need to you know package it and sell it to uh, sell it to some companies who need that kind of data but the the sort of landscape of what can be done is enormous since you can measure uh, almost anything nowadays—not only user interactions, like you know what websites they visit and what they buy on Amazon and that kind of things, uh, which can be shared in a transparent and fair way using this th- kind of technology—but also crowdsourcing. Uh, Many other kind of things like environmental variables, like pollution levels in an area or, you know, you name it, uh, or or smart cars producing, like detecting potholes or. So there's very, very many ways in which this kind of technology can be applied. And there are no ready-made answers for like the question of, okay, what are all the ways in which it can work? because it hasn't it has never been done before, right so it's it's unlocking completely new kind of data sets, and nobody knows how exactly it should go, so it's sort of experimental but at the same time very, very exciting to see
0: that possibility actually come to come to life so as a founder you, at least for now you you kind of clearly made this decision to not be vertically integrated to not kind of be building out your own use cases, you've built generalizable like, primitives, really, that would allow um, people the economic tooling, the technical and the economic tooling, to create their own marketplaces. Um, and I guess this kind of uh, focus around the ownership and governance of these datas. I mentioned earlier how I kind of, I was aware of you previously, but you came okay, back to my attention as a consequence of swash app um, which is a startup that went through our, our web 3 accelerator base camp could you tell us about how swash app are using a streamer to kind of illustrate the, the point with their use case
1: yeah so swash is is one of the applica- the first application being built on the data union framework so they've been sort of working on that technology um, since since it went into private beta like uh, almost a year ago or so. So what Swash is, is basically they, you know, they've made a, a browser plugin that uh, sort of spies on you, but you can't really call it spying because it's like totally transparent. It's like fully opt-in. You get to tweak every little parameter of, of what data you want to share. Um, and what happens then is that it sends this data. It publishes the data to the streamer network. Uh, where it gets pooled with, with the data of other users. So there's no processing happening on that data at that point in time. It's just raw data going into the same pipeline. You can see it as a, like, you know, a big river of data that is consists of little brooks. Is that the word, word yes, in yeah, English? Yeah,
0: yeah. Like, little, yeah. little
1: brooks forming into this big river. Um, <clears throat> and then that data becomes available uh, on the streamer ecosystem, on the, on the streamer marketplace, from where interested buyers can purchase access to that. Um, so it's so, uh, and then that revenue gets shared with each individual. So basically, the the plugin, the browser plugin, is also a crypto wallet. So if you install that, you'll see uh, your earnings. You can hold the data tokens, which are the currency that the payments are made in on the streamer marketplace, and you sort of see your balance is increasing whenever somebody purchases access to to that data.
0: And that's not a stable coin, right? So the assumption is is that they're also earning a stake in the streamer network as a consequence of being an early adopter as well. So that, that's quite an important um, design choice there, I guess.
1: Yes, for sure. Of course, the tokens can be withdrawn at any time and transferred wherever. So it's very, very different from your usual, you know, customer loyalty points kind of thing that many big companies do that they award you these points that can be exchanged for a limited set of services and are not transferable Uh, whereas with crypto you it's completely different like not only get you do you get like a stake in the ecosystem where uh, where these things are happening, but you can also transfer them, swap them for something else. Uh, you, you could, you know, in in the full blown ecosystem of Streamer, which we don't have the token incentives and that kind of stuff on the network level yet. But you could later use it for staking and and all these kind of things. So it's just way more flexible than anything that has been seen in the mainstream uh, ever in this sort of incentive incentivization or customer loyalty kind of um,
0: programs. That's just one use case. And I believe the model for Swash app was that they are going to primarily um, sell that data to advertisers that want to kind of do do better targeting, but there could be several others. Um, But what other use cases do you think are interesting? If we circle back to that original conversation around, you know, initially, a few years ago, you'd think in the context of smart cities and, and everything else. But actually, is is it now, is it going to be in DeFi? Um, you know, we're seeing a lot, a lot of value placed upon oracles and the ability to kind of have curated data sets that go, go into them. Um, you know, where do you think, where's the most likely place now we have, this kind of infrastructure, this new stack, um, both Streamer and others, to begin to kind of build these marketplaces, where do you think it's most likely that Web3 is going to begin to derive value from data marketplaces? It's an interesting question. Like Clearly,
1: it didn't happen where, where people ex- expected it to happen. And big ships turn very slowly, as they say. Uh, so, of course, a lot of experimentation is sort of happening in the grassroots level where individual developers are coming in and you know, experimenting with stuff. And that's also how Swash got started and you know, building up from, from there. But I think the real the sort of real game changer for many of these kind of technologies and the data economies is is when some bigger bigger participants start to um, start to step in, and it might not have been i o t and smart cities, but then again, like the you know the markets are every day they are surprising us in in many ways so for example. There are some, there's some stuff happening in the medical sector and with health data, which we initially sort of steered away from because we thought that, okay, this is very regulated, uh, this is very difficult, this is not going to fly uh, because the, the data is so so sensitive, right? But now it, it turns out that actually uh, the, the medical space is very interesting because this kind of technology that we're building actually gives control to the to the data subject. We can take care of things like end-to-end encryption and and sort of guarantee the safety of that data um, with with this technology. So the the expectation of how how fitting or unfitting it would be for a particular market sort of took us by surprise. And now there's now there's this Kraken project, which is EU Horizon 2020 funded project um, we're doing together with, with Atos and some other big players and some universities where we're creating um, yeah, like a uh, medical and hospital kind of environment uh, version of um, of the s- similar primitives that we have in the streamer stack already, uh, so that was sort of surprising. And another very interesting vertical, I think, at the moment is the telco sector, where for a long time there's been this problem of what to do with the data. It's usually like it's very regulated first of all, uh, so you know it's protected by law. And not just GDPR, but like stronger laws about uh, like secrecy of telecommunications specifically. So there's no way that the telcos can sort of utilize that data, and there are no ways for the users to to give the kind of strong consent or share data that is. Uh, less sensitive than you know the the most sensitive stuff, like the call records and so on so um, i'm certainly not saying that you know we should touch those or monetize those in any way, but telcos have a lot of reach, and they have a lot of customers who are sort of digitally savvy and use their service every day so there's a lot of space to build on top of that idea and and that reach uh, that that telcos have into their their user bases and there is nothing happening in terms of data sharing and monetization in that space and it's very very interesting to see like what could be done there so I think the adoption and the use cases come from sort of surprising directions that are, are different from the IoT and smart cities that uh, everyone predict, predicted in the beginning.
0: Yeah, and I guess what I'm hearing you say, and I definitely see this across other projects where we have an investment, say Ocean or Fetch.ai, where data is kind of you know the, effectively the commodity um, that underpins their proposition that actually a lot of, if we think about the markets that are going to form first in a context of an open data economy, at least in a European context and potentially elsewhere, a lot of that is going to be driven by public policy. And so there is a kind of top-down nature to the direction that this stuff will travel. And of course, the example you gave in health, I'm sure has been accelerated by everything that's going on with COVID. Um, as I said in the intro, you know, recently the European Commission, in its kind of continued almost war against big tech, um, has, has been saying that they are going to force them to open up proprietary data and make it available to, um, to competition across all verticals. So, i noticed you've you've kind of clearly preempted that you have somebody called maria savona who's a professor at the university of sussex here in the uk but um she's heavily involved in a policy research unit at uh, the university of sussex both in terms of kind of eu and uk um uh digital transformation and and, and data um you know so to what extent do you look to engage with you know the public sector and and do you think that's true do you think a lot of what will be happening in the data economy will be coming top down or or do you think there's you know some kind of combination with a bottom-up approach
1: yeah i think it will come from both directions of course both top down and bottom up but the top down is is very important because even if we create amazing technology and and get people interested in in uh using that and creating these new kind of revenue streams or usage patterns, if it's somehow prohibited by the regulation or not supported by it, then it all sort of dies down. So obviously there's a certain amount of education that needs to happen to from, uh, and the information should flow from, from the builders towards the, the politicians and regulators who are um, deciding about... Um, about the laws and regulations. There's been like, really great advancements in the regulation sector, such as GDPR, for example. But the problem with GDPR is that it's already outdated. It doesn't consider the decentralized technology at all. Um, it, was, it was created to keep the, the tech giants in check and avoid the kind of data abuse that we've been seeing in the recent years um, before GDPR PR came into play. So, for example, GDPR isn't opinionated about, uh, like, uh, would the nodes be data processors, for example, from from the GDPR uh, sense, if, uh, you know, if some personal data is published into a decentralized network, like, if I, let's say I make a transaction on Ethereum, and I put my personal details into a smart contract, does that actually uh, make Ethereum illegal because I'm pretty sure not all the nodes are sort of compliant uh, with with GDPR and how how things are run. Uh, so it's it's very very unclear and, and a lot of discussion and knowledge transfer and and sort of back and forth is needed between the builders and the policymakers to improve the next iteration. Of, of regulation, and we've been involved in many such discussions in the EU as well as in the US to sort of share ideas. Um, there's also been other projects. The ocean guys have been there um, and so on. So this is happening, and I think it's an enabling factor for sure, but it's not quite enough. You know, it's, it's necessary but not sufficient to, to create these future data ecosystems, Um, but if it's successful and the policymakers see that this kind of technology can actually be a solution to the data abuse and the centralization of power that that they are trying to fight against uh, and for good reason, um, then I think it enables us who are providing the the technology side and the the sort of bottom-up approach, if you will, to uh, to meet in the middle, and then things actually start happening. And the regulation where these tech giants and everybody else are required to grant users access to their data is definitely like um, a positive development, because it does liberate that data completely and allows that data to be connected to the kind of frameworks and the infrastructures that we and others are building, so it will from the EU point of view, it will sort of work towards the uh, you know um, anti-monopolistic uh, approach. But from the user's point of view, the user is really the one who benefits in in this kind of change because suddenly they can apply their data to any chosen purpose or any chosen uh, application, including ones where they can actually earn money uh, or improve the world with, with the help of their data. The, the, it's a very broad scope of where this can lead. And it's, uh, it's a super exciting time to also be alive and to be building this kind of technology and interacting with all these parties.
0: You know, I assume on the one hand, of course, it's great news that Big tech will be forced to make that data available both to users and or their competition. But I guess the big question is in in what format, because um, it would be very easy to make this stuff available, but it would be unusable, especially if you're thinking about the end consumer. Um, so actually, a policy like that would require uh, an understanding of you know exactly how you. How you allow that data to be turned into a usable format to enable kind of competition to happen around it, or to to allow for permissioning from a consumer perspective? Um, yeah, it's true, but it's maybe too much to ask that the uh, you know regulation would be
1: opinionated on uh, on the format that is it's provided. And of course, like if the tech giants want to sort of work around the thing, they can. Uh, you know they can liberate the data, but only if you, uh, you know, send a pigeon to a certain a- address carrying a handwritten letter asking for <laughs> the user's data. But if we're sort of talking something that's digital and reasonable, you know, there, let's assume there exists an API where the data can be had. Okay, the data can be had in very many different formats and very many mm-hmm. different shapes, but as long as it's digitally available, then that opens up a market for, let's say, middlemen or, or some kind of uh, helpers or, or I would call them workers that can sort of take that data with the strong consent from the user to do so and transform that into something that's uh, more usable and, and more valuable. And There can even, even be very long refinement chains. You know, there's someone, there's like an... Hmm, I wouldn't call it oracle but um, okay someone who pulls the data from the API and publishes that to uh, you know a container like a streamer stream or, or some data set somewhere then another party goes and takes that data maybe pays something to the original party who pulled that data and refines that further uh, and then the next guy and then the next guy and then the next guy uh, you know trains an AI and and gets some amazing insights into into the state of the world. So the sort of abstraction level of the data goes up at every step and the data becomes more and more valuable and usable at every step. And the value trickles down the other way, of course, to the uh, original producer and to the owner of that data in this case, which is also possible using these frameworks. So I wouldn't be too concerned about how or in what format exactly the data becomes available as long as it becomes available digitally and in a way that the user who owns the data can permission third parties to pull their data out of the service and do a particular thing with that data.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting to think about that almost supply chain of of data workers and how they would uh, contribute to... Value creation um, within it. Of course, maintaining this the integrity of the, the provenance of, of the data and how it moves around. And I guess my, my question was really triggered by how we looked at open banking happen here in the UK, where banks, you know, retail high street banks were um, forced to make available uh, data APIs, but either they didn't, or they did it slowly, or they did it in a very, very clumsy way, where there was very little advantage had by a fintech startup. You know, trying to trying to leverage that. Um, so there are kind of precedents of of how that can be executed poorly to the disadvantage of uh, you know a competitive environment. But um, will the
1: slow movers then be able to to retain the customers? Right, like the, the customer will will see through that that they're trying to. You know, they're trying to not do this. So wouldn't the customers then jump on board on those who who are like faster adopters and, and do the fair thing more quickly,
0: right? You'd certainly hope so. But, I, I, you know, I think if you look in the case of banking, I mean, there is just huge inertia. Most people have not moved to a fintech startup because it's it it's feels painful even if it's not. And I, I could imagine with something like a Google or an Amazon, you're gonna have the same inertia there. You know, do I really want to, as much as I hate Amazon, do I really wanna, you know, move off it into a competitor? I think we're in a transient
1: state. Like we're looking at it like in one point in time, but you know, it will, uh, as long as the direction is there, we'll eventually get there. You know, if we're moving in the right direction all the time, even though the change happens sometimes painfully slowly, it will eventually happen as long as as the direction is right.
0: So um, maybe we kind of end on a a bigger vision. Um, I think it's been really useful to kind of go really deep into the weeds on on things like GDPR. So now we we kind of look at this new or emergent um, data economy stack, open data economy stack. Um, Are there some fundamental bits missing for it to scale, such as self-sovereign identity? Does that have to be solved first before this could fully realize its potential? Or do you see other technologies um, like NFTs, non-fungible tokens, DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations in in the context of data unions? um, Do you see that there's a potential that the data economy can now leverage um, some DeFi technologies whereby this thing can become an asset that you could borrow and lend again. What, what excites you on the, the convergence of technologies that we're seeing in Web3 and, and where that could take us in the bigger picture?
1: I think one really promising direction that is happening all across the space is the path towards scalability. So that is for sure one of the main blockers in like creating this freely flowing ecosystem where uh, where also value can be transferred uh, with very low cost and with very uh, very high volume of transactions. So, that will, yeah, that will unlock many things and um, remove many of the pain points for builders where everybody at the moment is trying to find ways to avoid doing things on Ethereum mainnet, for example, where the gas costs are sky high. Due to the DeFi craze, so everyone's looking for workarounds. But the ideal solution would be to to run these applications on um, on a public chain, where you get the benefits of composability, and you can get the benefits of uh, you know connecting your applications with DeFi and and all other platforms. Um, so I think this, yeah, it's still like it's still in the horizon. It's not happening anytime soon. But, but it will happen. And then I think that's one of the final blockers. For everything else, we have the technical basics in place. You know, Okay, we don't have like fully like self-sovereign identities that would be tied to your person, but we have good enough digital identities that allow you to do the sort of pseudonymous uh, kind of interaction that you can do on the streamer network or on, on the Ethereum network. Um, so I think that's good enough as a, as a start, uh, from like non technical space, like what are the current obstacles? I think there's a certain kind of mind shift still required in the sort of uh industry and enterprise sector like they' they 've been very wary of of the crypto and a little bit like suspicious about this like what is this thing? Can it actually be used for something useful instead of you know uh, the early days of Bitcoin being used to anonymously buy drugs or, or whatever. So the whole space has come such a long way from, from those times. And it's starting to be like really serious technology. Uh, and the DeFi stuff is certainly showing how, how disruptive it can be. And the ICO boom in 2017, 2018 is showing like another example of that. So... I think it's time for the big players and the big enterprises to realize that okay, this this is the direction of the future, and we need to transform now and start taking these things into account, or or face the disruption in the future that that will inevitably happen sooner or later. I mean everyone's betting uh, on this direction. You have you know you guys, you have even Andreas and Horovitz is is betting heavily on on crypto and decentralization like this 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 seems to be the the sort of consensus of the visionaries and the consensus of the money that the world is going into this direction so you either hop on board uh, or you face the consequences of not doing it
0: early uh, early enough great and you will let that be a warning to everybody i don't want to be like a doomsday (laughs) (laughs) you know doomsday prophet or or
1: anything but Every, every company should have like a strategy for decentralization and blockchain and data economy. And, and, you know, these are really strategic core things. And if, you know, if someone's listening whose board meeting uh, hasn't discussed these topics yet, then, you know, you're in trouble. <laughs>
0: yeah, well, I can definitely e- echo that. And again, you know, hopefully this podcast serves as a catalyst Um, around the open data economy and and having people like you on I think all contribute to that so Henry it's been great having you on um, and uh, looking forward to seeing the progress of streamer and and some of the marketplaces that that happen on top of it. Thanks a lot I've had such a good time so thanks for having me on. If you enjoyed today's podcast please make sure you subscribe rate and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of web three.